0: Hello and welcome back listeners and readers, thank you so much for joining me today. We are moving into Chapter 4 of A Lost Lady by Willa Cather. This is a longer chapter, uh, so depending on how it goes, I may or may not be taking a break. To rest my vocals, but I do have a big cup of tea nearby that I'll be sipping on from time to time. So maybe that will be enough to get me through. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. All right, let's get going. 4. In pleasant weather, Judge Pomeroy walked to the foresters, but on the occasion of the dinner for the Ogdens, he engaged the liveryman to take him and his nephew over in one of the town hacks, vehicles seldom used except for funerals and weddings. They smelled strongly of the stable, and contained lap ropes as heavy as lead and as slippery as oiled paper. Neil and his uncle were the only townspeople asked to the foresters that evening. They rolled over the creek and up the hill in state and emerged covered with horsehair. Captain Forrester met them at the door, his burly figure buttoned up in a frock coat a flat collar and black string tie under the heavy folds of his neck. He was always clean-shaven except for a drooping, dun-colored mustache. The company stood behind him laughing while Neil caught up the whisk broom and began dusting roan hairs off his uncle's broadcloth. Mr. Forrester gave Neil a brushing in turn and then took him into the parlor and introduced him to Mrs. Ogden and her daughter. The daughter was a rather pretty girl, Neil thought, in a pale pink evening dress, which left bare her smooth arms and short, dimpled neck. Her eyes were, as Miss Forster had said, a china-blue, rather prominent and inexpressive. Her fleece of ashy-gold hair was bound about her head with silver bands. In spite of her fresh, rose-like complexion, her face was not altogether agreeable. Two dissatisfied lines reached from the corners of her short nose to the corners of her mouth. When she was displeased, even a little, these lines tightened, drew her nose back, and gave her a suspicious, injured expression. Neil sat down by her and did his best, but he found her hard to talk to. She seemed nervous and distracted, kept glancing over her shoulder and crushing her handkerchief up in her hands. Her mind clearly was elsewhere. After a few moments, he turned to the mother, who was more easily interested. Mrs. Ogden was almost unpardonably homely. She had a pear-shaped face, and across her high forehead lay a row of flat, dry curls. Her bluish-brown skin was almost the color of her violet dinner dress. A diamond necklace glittered about her wrinkled throat. Unlike Constance, she seemed thoroughly, thoroughly amiable. But as she talked, she tilted her head and used her eyes, availing herself of those arch glances which she had supposed only pretty women indulged in. Probably she had long been surrounded by people to whom she was an important personage and had acquired the manner of a spoiled darling. Neil thought her rather foolish at first, but in a few moments he had got used to her mannerisms and began to like her. He found himself laughing heartily and forgot the discouragement of his failure with the daughter. Mr. Ogden, a short, weather-beaten man of fifty, with a cast in one eye, a stiff, imperial, and twisted mustaches, was noticeably quieter and less expansive than when Neil had met him here on former occasions. He seemed to expect his wife to do the talking. When Mrs. Forrester addressed him, or passed near him, his good eye twinkled and followed her while the eye that looked askance remained unchanged and committed itself to nothing. Suddenly, everyone became more lively. The air warmed, and the lamplight seemed to brighten as a fourth member member of the Denver party came in from the dining room with a glittering tray full of cocktails he had been making. Frank Ellinger Was a bachelor of forty, six feet two, with long straight legs, fine shoulders, and a figure that still permitted his white waistcoat to button without a wrinkle under his conspicuously well cut dinner coat. His black hair, coarse and curly as the filling of a mattress, was gray about the ears. His florid face showed little purple veins about his beaked nose, a nose like the prow of a ship with long nostrils. His chin was deeply cleft. His thick, curly lips seemed very muscular, very much under his control, and with his strong white teeth, irregular and curved, gave him the look of a man who could bite an iron rod in two with a snap of his jaws. His whole figure seemed very much alive under his clothes, with a restless, muscular energy that had something of the cruelty of wild animals in it. Neil was very much interested in this man, the hero of many ambiguous stories. He didn't know whether he liked him or not. He knew nothing bad about him, but he felt something evil. The cocktails were the signal for general conversation, and the company drew together in one group. Even Miss Constance seemed less dissatisfied. Ellinger drank his cocktail standing beside her chair and offered her the cherry in his glass. They were old-fashioned whiskey cocktails nobody drank martinis then gin was supposed to be the consolation of sailors and inebriate scrub women very good frank very good captain forrester pronounced drawing out a fresh cologne scented handkerchief to wipe his mustache our encores in order the captain puffed slightly when he talked his eyes somewhat always somewhat suffused and bloodshot since his injury, blinked at his friends from under his heavy lids. One more round for everybody, Captain. Ellinger brought in from the sideboard a capacious shaker and refilled all the glasses except Miss Ogden's. At her, he shook his finger and offered her the little dish of maraschino cherries. "'No, I I, want—I don't want those. I want the one in your glass,' she said with a pouty smile. "'I like it to taste of something.' "'Constance,' said her mother reprovingly, rolling her eyes at Mrs. Forrester, as if to share with her the charm of such innocence. "'Neil,' Miss Forrester laughed, "'won't you give the child your cherry too?' Neil promptly crossed the room and proffered the cherry in the bottom of his glass. She took it with her thumb and forefinger and dropped it into her own. Where he was quick to observe, she left it when they went out to dinner. A stubborn piece of pink flesh, he decided, and certainly a fool about a man quite old enough to be her father. He sighed when he saw that he was placed next to her at the dinner table. Captain Forrester still made a commanding figure at the head of his own table, with his napkin tucked under his chin, and the work of carving well in hand. Nobody could lay bare the bones of a brace of duck or a twenty-pound turkey more deftly. What part of the turkey do you prefer, Miss Ogden? If one had a preference it was gratified with all the stuffing and gravy that went with it and the vegetables properly placed when a plate left captain forrester's hands it was a dinner the recipient was served and well served he served mrs forrester last of the ladies but before the men and to her too he said mrs forrester what part of the turkey shall i give you this evening he was a man who did not vary his formulae or his manners. He was no more mobile than his countenance. Neal and Judge Pomeroy had often remarked how much Captain Forrester looked like the pictures of Grover Cleveland. His clumsy dignity covered a deep nature and a conscience that had never been juggled with. His repose was like that of a mountain. When he laid his fleshy, thick-fingered hand upon a frantic horse, an hysterical woman, an Irish workman out for blood, he brought them peace, something they could not resist. That had been the secret of his management of men. His sanity asked nothing, claimed nothing. It was so simple that it brought a hush over distracted creatures. In the old days, when he was building road in the Black Hills, trouble sometimes broke out in camp when he was absent, staying with Mrs. Forrester at Colorado Springs. He would put down the telegram that announced an insurrection and say to his wife, "Mady, I must go to the men. And that was all he did. He went to them. While the captain was intent upon his duties as host, he talked very little, and Judge Pomeroy and Ellinger kept a lively crossfire of amusing stories going. Neil, sitting opposite of Ellinger, watched him closely. He still couldn't decide whether he liked him or not. In Denver, Frank was known as a Prince of good fellows tactful, generous, resourceful, though apt to trim his sails to the wind, a man who good-humoredly bowed to the inevitable, or to the almost inevitable. He had, when he was younger, been notoriously wild, but that was not held against him, even by mothers with marriageable daughters like Mrs. Ogden. Morals were different in those days." Neil had heard his uncle refer to Ellinger's youthful infatuation with a woman called Nell Emerald, a handsome and rather unusual woman who conducted a house properly licensed by the Denver police. Nell Emerald had told an old club man that, though she had been out behind young Ellinger's new trotting horse, she had no respect for a man who would go driving with a prostitute in broad daylight. This story and a dozen like it were often related of Ellinger and the women laughed over them as heartily as the men. All the while that he was making a scandalous chronicle for himself, young Ellinger had been devotedly caring for an invalid mother and he was described to strangers as a terribly fast young man, and a model son. That combination pleased the taste of the time. Nobody thought the worse of him. Now that his mother was dead, he lived at the Brown Palace Hotel, though he still kept her house at Colorado Springs. When the roast was well underway, Black Tom, very formal in a white waistcoat and high collar, poured the champagne. Captain Forrester lifted his glass, the frail stem between his thick fingers, and glancing round the table at his guests and at Mrs. Forrester said, Happy days! It was the toast he always drank at dinner, the invocation he was sure to utter when he took a glass of whiskey with an old friend. Whoever had heard him say it once liked to hear him say it again. Nobody else could utter those two words as he did, with such gravity and high courtesy. It seemed a solemn moment, seemed to knock at the door of fate, behind which all days, happy and otherwise, were hidden. Neil drank his wine with a pleasant shiver, thinking that nothing else made life seem so precarious, the future so cryptic and unfathomable, As that brief toast uttered by the massive man happy days mrs ogden turned to the host with her most languishing smile captain forrester i want you to tell constance she was an east virginia woman and what she really said was captain forrester i want you to tell etc her vowels seemed to roll about in the same way her eyes did I want you to tell Constance about how you first found this lovely spot way back in Indian times." The captain looked down the table between the candles at Mrs. Forrester, as if to consult her. She smiled and nodded, and her beautiful earrings swung beside her pale cheeks. She was wearing her diamonds tonight, and a black velvet gown. Her husband had archaic ideas about jewels. A man bought them for his wife in acknowledgment of things he could not gracefully utter. They must be costly. They must show that he was able to buy them and that she was worthy to wear them. With her approval, the captain began his narrative, a concise account of how he came west a young boy after serving in the Civil War and took a job as driver for a freighting company that carried supplies across the plains from Nebraska City to Cherry Creek, as Denver was then called. The freight freighters after embarking in that sea of grass 600 miles in width had lost all count of the days of the week and the month. One day was like another and all the glorious Good hunting, plenty of antelope and buffalo, boundless sunny sky, boundless plains of waving grass, long freshwater lagoons, yellow with lagoon flowers, where the bison in their periodic migrations stopped to drink and bathe and wallow. An ideal life for a young man, the captain pronounced once when he was driven out of the trail by a washout he rode south on his horse to explore and found an indian encampment near the Sweetwater. on this very hill where his house now stood he was he said greatly taken ab- greatly taken with the location and made up his mind that he would one day have a house there He cut down a young willow tree and drove the stake into the ground to mark the spot where he wished to build. He went away and did not come back for many years. He was helping to lay the first railroad across the plains. There were those that were dependent on me, he said. I had sickness to contend with and responsibilities. But in all those years, I expect there was hardly a day past that I did not remember the sweet water and this hill. When I came here a young man, I had planned it in my mind, pretty much as it is today, where I would dig my well and where I would plant my grove and my orchard. I planned to build a house that my friends could come to, with a wife like Mrs. Forrester, to make it attractive to them. I used to promise myself that some day I would manage it. This part of the story the captain told not with embarrassment, but with reserve, choosing his words slowly, absently cracking English walnuts with his strong fingers and heaping a little hoard of kernels beside his plate his friends understood that he was referring to his first marriage, to the poor invalid wife who never had been happy and who had kept his nose to the grindstone. When things looked most discouraging, he went on, I came back here once and bought the place from the railroad company. They took my note i found my willow stake it had rooted and grown into a tree and i planted three more to mark the corners of my house 12 years later mrs forrester came here with me shortly after our marriage and we built our house captain forrester puffed from time to time but his clear account commanded attention. Something in the way he uttered his unornamented phrases gave them the impressiveness of inscriptions cut in stone. Mrs. Forrester nodded at him from her end of the table. And now, tell us your philosophy of life. This is where it comes in, she laughed teasingly. The captain coughed and looked abashed. I was intending to omit that tonight. Some of our guests have already heard it. No, no, it belongs at the end of the story, and if some of us have heard it, we can hear it again. Go on. Well, then, my philosophy Is that what you think of and plan for day by day, in spite of yourself, so to speak, you will get, you will get it more or less. That is, unless you are one of the people who get nothing in this world. There are such people. I have lived too much in mining works and construction camps. Not to know that. He paused as if, though this was too dark a chapter to be gone into, it must have its place, its moment of silent recognition. If you are not one of those, Constance and Neil, you will accomplish what you dream of most. And why? That's the interesting part of it, his wife prompted him. Because he roused himself from his abstraction, and looked about at the company. Because a thing that is dreamed of in the way I mean is already an accomplished fact. All our great West has been developed from such dreams. The homesteaders and the prospectors and the contractors. We dreamed the railroads across the mountains, just as I dreamed my place on the sweet water. All these things will be everyday facts to the coming generation, but to us, Captain Forrester ended with a sort of grunt. Something forbidding had come into his voice, the lonely, defiant note that is so often heard in the voices of old Indians. Mrs. Ogden had listened to the story with such sympathy, and Neil liked her better than ever, and even the preoccupied Constance seemed able to give it her attention. They rose from the dessert and went into the parlor to arrange the card tables. The captain still played whist as well as ever. As he brought out a box of his best cigars, he passed before Mrs. Ogden and said, Is smoke offensive to you, Mrs. Ogden? When she protested that it was not, he crossed the room to where Constance was talking with Ellinger and asked with the same grave courtesy, Is smoke offensive to you, Constance? Had there been half a dozen women present, he would have asked that question of each probably and in the same words. It did not bother him to repeat a phrase. If an expression answered his purpose, he saw no reason for varying it. Mrs. Forrester and Mr. Ogden were to play against Mrs. Ogden and the captain. Constance, said Mrs. Forrester as she sat down, Will you play with Neil? I'm told he's very good. Miss Ogden's short nose flickered up and lines on either side of it deepened, and she again looked injured. Neil was sure she detested him. He was not going to be done in by her. "'Miss Ogden,' he said as he stood beside his chair, deliberately shuffling a pack of cards. "'My uncle and I are used to playing together, "'and probably you are used to playing with Mr. Ellinger. "'Suppose we try that combination.' She gave him a quick suspicious glance from under her yellow eyelashes, and flung herself into a chair without so much as answering him. Frank Ellinger came in from the dining room, where he had been sampling the captain's French brandy, and took the vacant seat opposite Mrs. Ogden- Miss Ogden. So it's you and me, Connie. Good enough, he exclaimed, cutting the pack Neil pushed toward him. Just before midnight, Black Tom opened the door and announced that the eggnog was ready. The card players went into the dining room where the punch bowl stood smoking on the table. Constance, said Captain Forrester, do you sing? I like to hear one of the old songs with the eggnog. I'm sorry, Captain Forrester, I really haven't any voice. Neil noticed that whenever Constance spoke to the captain, she strained her throat, though he wasn't in the least deaf. He broke in over her refusal. Uncle can start a song if you coax him, sir. Judge Pomeroy, after smoothing his silver whiskers and coughing, began, "Old Lang Syne. The others joined in, but they hadn't got to the end of it when a hollow rumbling down on the bridge made them laugh, and everyone ran to the front windows to see the judge's funeral coach come lurching up the hill with only one of the side lanterns lit. Mrs. Forrester sent Tom out out with a drink for the driver. While Neil and his uncle were putting on their overcoats in the hall, she came up to them and whispered coaxingly to the boy, "'Remember, you are coming over tomorrow at two. I am planning a drive, and I want you to amuse Constance for me.' Neil bit his lip and looked down into Mrs. Forrester's laughing, persuasive eyes. "'I'll do it for you, but that's the only reason,' he said threateningly i understand for me i'll credit it to your account the judge and his nephew rolled away on swaying springs the ogdens retired to their rooms upstairs mrs forrester went to help the captain divest himself of his frock coat and put it away for him ever since he was hurt He had to be propped high on pillows at night, and he slept in a narrow iron bed in the alcove which had formerly been his wife's dressing room. While he was undressing, he breathed heavily and sighed as if he were very tired. He fumbled with his studs, then blew on his fingers and tried again. His wife came to his aid and quickly unbuttoned everything he did not thank her in words but submitted gratefully when the iron bed creaked at receiving his heavy figure she called from the big bedroom good night mr forrester and drew the heavy curtains that shuck, shut off the alcove she took off her rings and earrings and was beginning to unfasten her black velvet bodice when at a tinkle of glass from without she stopped short. Rehooking the shoulder of her gown, she went to the dining room, now faintly lit by the coal fire in the black par- in the back parlour. Frank Ellinger was standing at the sideboard, taking a nightcap. The Forester French brandy was old and heavy like a cordial. Be careful she murmured as she approached him i have a distinct impression that there is someone on the enclosed stairway there is a wide crack in the door ah but kittens have claws these days pour me just a little thank you i'll have mine in by the fire he followed her into the next room where she stood by the grate, looking at him in the light of the pale blue flames that ran over the fresh coal, put on to keep the fire. You've had a good many brandies, Frank, she said, studying his flushed, masterful face. Not too many. I'll need them. Tonight. He replied meaningly. She nervously brushed back a lock of hair that had come down a little. It's not tonight, it's morning. Go to bed and sleep as late as you please. Take care. I heard silk stockings on the stairs. Good night. She put her hand on the sleeve of his coat The white fingers clung to the black cloth as bits of paper clung to magnetized iron. Her touch, soft as it was, went through the man, all the feet and inches of him. His broad shoulders lifted on a deep breath. He looked down at her. Her eyes fell. Good night, she said faintly. As she turned quickly away, the train, of her velvet dress caught on the leg of his broadcloth trousers and dragged with a friction that crackled and threw sparks. Both started. They stood looking at each other for a moment before she actually slipped through the door. Ellinger remained by the hearth, his arms folded tight over his chest, his curly lips compressed, frowning into the fire. Woo made it <laughs>